0: From the dark travail, he will claim the holy ones. He'll lift high the chosen sons of God. Whew. Um, I'm worn out already. I don't know if you are or not, but uh, I am worn out. Uh, God is good. Let's go to Luke chapter 16. Uh. Luke chapter 16. Our track here through Luke to remind us very quickly that once we hit Peter's confession, um, around chapter 9, whatever it is, chapter 9, chapter 8, uh, we have now turned, uh, headed towards the cross. So we've, Jesus, instead of uh, focusing on proclaiming who He is through demonstration to the disciples, disciples now have who he is, and so now he has turned physically and spiritually, mentally, emotionally toward the cross. And as he's journeying towards the cross, I think it a mighty picture that God would show us how to follow Jesus as he's headed towards the cross. Like he doesn't tell he doesn't show us how to follow Jesus just as Jesus lives on this earth. Although there's things that we can value and, and see from the time before that. But The focus now is on how to follow Christ, and it's in the context of headed towards the cross. Not just, here's Jesus' life, but it's in the context of headed towards the cross. So I just want to set that kind of as a reminder for us that this is where we're at. We are headed towards the cross, and Jesus is headed toward the cross. And and it's in this context that we see how to follow Christ. Um, I think we should keep that in mind, even tomorrow. As you think about what does it mean to be a Christ follower, understand that you are following Christ in the context of headed towards the cross. He was headed towards the cross. So, to set up the text for us this morning, let me say a few comments. Our society today is built upon uh, this idea of individualism. Uh, Oftentimes, this individualism is expressed in decision-making done solo. Like, we want to make decisions by ourselves, and, and we think that we're only truly living when I'm free to make decisions that I want to make. So, that is the height of living and expression, is when I can make the decisions I want to make free of anybody else's influence on them. Um, so, we somehow are less than free if we do so otherwise. The problem, though, is that we oftentimes, in decision-making in our life, we do things with such nearsightedness. Is anybody else in here, I know some of you have wear glasses and contacts, anybody else in here nearsighted? Like, so you can see well in the, like, close up to you, right? So if you've ever hung out with me or paid attention, uh, I, when I'm sitting down, like, to eat lunch with you, or if I'm... Uh, at my computer desk, I always take my glasses off, because I can see everything around me like beautifully, like everything is crystal clear, Uh, and and besides, I hate wearing glasses anyways, Um, but I can't see far away, like my vision gets blurry, like blurred, this past time when I got, finally got my license updated again, uh, they finally said when you drive, you have to have your glasses on, uh, so I felt like a, a big failure, but uh, nevertheless, I have to drive with my glasses on. Um, I have a restriction. So when we make decisions, though, understand that it's easy to make decisions based upon what's right around us, because that's clear, that's easy for us to see. We know what's, you know, what's stabbing us in the side at this moment, or we know what's bothering us in our minds at the moment. We, we see the things as they are, uh, although not Perfectly because we're not God, but we see things the way they are around us, and so we tend to make decisions based upon a very near-sighted view. Decisions like where we'll go to school or who we'll marry or how many hours I'm going to work this week or today, even, or maybe even your response in that moment of frustration. So these are moments where I'm deciding what I'm going to do just based upon what I can see right now. I'm mad, I'm going to say this. It's what I see right now. Like Mark Devers said, he said, Never before in history has there been so much information being poured into our minds, and yet so little wisdom. People spend hours and hours reading books, or researching on the internet, or watching TV, but we oftentimes mistake knowledge for wisdom. I've got this big brain here with all of these facts, and so that makes me wise. And we mistake those two things. They're quite different. Although they do affect each other, they are still different. You know, look at someone, look at how someone uses knowledge. Look at yourself and how you use knowledge. That will oftentimes clue you into their wisdom. You could be one of the smartest guys with a Ph.D., with all of whatever knowledge of all these, whatever lofty things, but if wisdom is not there, I think we'll see, as we see today, that that poses a problem. Another thought. With wealth, as we are very wealthy, even in this church, comes choices. And choices show our desires, And desires reveal our hearts, and our hearts show our wisdom or lack thereof. Ultimately, it is expressed whether we are wise or not. So, all of our lives, though, I want to point out, are made up of wise and very foolish decisions. Like we will all have decisions that are marked as incredibly wise. And we'll all have decisions that are marked as incredibly dumb or stupid or foolish, right? Does anybody have like one of each of those maybe over the past month or the past couple months? Wow, that was really wise. That was really stupid, right? We'll all do that. But I think the Bible, though, paints a picture for us that even though that is true, we are all generally we are all on one trajectory or another. One is the path of wisdom and one is the path of foolishness. We are all generally on one track or the other. I read to you Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. It says, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord." And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is the wise one. But the wicked, the foolish, are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. uh, Proverbs 10, verse 1, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Again, a general foolishness is this man's path. Whoever trusts in a general wisdom in God, this And the Lord is safe. And we must realize that one path leads to God and the other path leads to hell. And I think Jesus is going to show us in this chapter, essentially, these two paths. He's going to show us the one of the main considerations in following the trajectory of wisdom. So if we would be on the trajectory of wisdom, I think particularly in the first half of this passage, we will see what that main consideration is. And in the second half, we will concentrate more on the foolish side or the foolish trajectory demonstrated demonstrated for us by the rich man. So let's go ahead and read all of chapter 16, verse 1 through 31, and then we'll continue. If you have your Bibles, verse 1 says, He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to the other, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife And marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he he said, then i beg you father to send him to my father's house for i have five brothers so that they may warn so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but abraham said they have moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent he said to him if they do not hear moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Alright, let's pray. Father, uh, Father, let um, any words that I might say this morning that are not of you and not reflective of your word, let them be burned to nothing. And Father, let your word speak to us truths that only it can do. And Father, let us walk away having listened with care. And Father, having desired to know you more clearly, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So there are really two parts to this chapter. The first part is basically the dishonest manager and what is modeled there for the disciples. The second part is basically the rich man and what is modeled there for the Pharisees to see. So as we work through this text this morning, let me encourage us and you, all of us, to evaluate honestly with the aid of the Spirit which path. You're on. Are we generally on this path of wisdom or generally on this path of foolishness? And let me remind us as we do this James 1 5 says this If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let me remind us here that there is no reference to age, no reference to earning this wisdom in this passage. Wisdom is a gift of God. This is why you can meet an 80-year-old who may have gained some practical life, thoughts, and wisdom, but still seems quite foolish. And then this is why you can meet a 30-year-old who has not lived a ton of life, but seems wiser than most around him or her. Uh, Wisdom is something that is given by God. And God says to ask, and He gives it generously. So, I just wanted to warn us away from saying, I am wise, or I've got this figured out because I have done blah, 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 blah. Instead, God is the one who grants wisdom. So, first thought here for this morning. The path of wisdom leads to success and eternal life. The path of wisdom leads to success and eternal life. Now, Today, one of our largest issues in life, again, is that we make decisions, I think, based upon the here and now. What can I see that's right in front of me, and that's how I'm going to make my decision. So, I choose to sleep with and move in with this individual because I love them and it makes the most sense financially. Again, what I'm seeing here and now. I choose to spend my money on this car or in this way because this is what I want. I choose to date this person because they seem to fit me well. Again, the right here and now. I choose to make this commitment or sorry, I choose to make this comment because it's the truth. Again, based upon the here and now, I choose to put my kids in this event or this sport because it's what they like. Again, the here and now. And lastly, I choose to have this job because it's what's best. For my family right now, it's the money that we need or whatever. Again, thinking about the here and now. The question, though, is how did consideration of the future fit into your wisdom or lack thereof in making the above decisions or other like decisions? How did consideration of the future fit into the decisions that you've made this past month or these past six months? Jesus, I think in this passage of the shrewd manager, is leading His disciples here to live with the end in consideration. To live with the future in view. He is saying that wisdom will lead you to consider where these decisions will take you. See, we tend to just look at where does this decision take me today, and I think Jesus is, is saying to, to them here, consider where this decision will take you in five years, in 30 years. Ultimately, will take you in accordance with the kingdom coming in the future. Remember, we're not just talking about your best life now. We're talking about following Jesus. We're talking about a life that lives following Jesus. with And this is... Something we do with the end in mind or the end in view. This is, this is not something that we just get to do if this fits our convenience. Do you understand me? Like this idea of living with wisdom and seeing the, and making decisions with the end in view is not just okay. Well, if I want to like change my life or it to be better, then this is how I should do it. No, this is what a follower of Jesus does. This is not an option for us. We're talking about something today that marks a follower of Jesus, something that is evidence of someone who is following Jesus. So now let's let's jump into the story. The, first of all, the rich man was someone who manages his money. I'm sorry, the rich man had a manager, rather, who manages his money. Particularly in this case, we see like his loans, like debt that is owed to the rich man. And somehow the rich man, and we don't know the details of this, Jesus doesn't tell us, but the rich man discovers that his manager has not been honest with him. So the manager is going to be fired as soon as he wraps up a couple of his business deals. And the manager responds, in this case, by reducing the debt of the rich man's clients. That which they owe that he's managing for the rich man here, he reduces those debts. Now this would be beneficial because once the man has no job, he would have the gratuity of these clients. I and mean, basically what he's doing at this point is he's essentially earning his rent at the rich man's expense, at the owner's expense. So let's read the story, verse 1. He says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that, his man was, that, his man, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So here he is, about to lose his job, and he wonders what he's going to do. There's a concern here for the future. Looking ahead, what is going on? He says in verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. I mean, here he is, thinking ahead. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Again, essentially, he is gathering rent for the future by forgiving these amounts of his loan. Now, understand real quick that the debts that he's forgiving is not like, you know, I owe, uh, you know, payday advance like 200 bucks and they just gave me $100 off, right? That's not the kind of loans. Like, like these would be years, one, two, multiple years worth of wages, so imagine you make 40,000 at your job. Uh, that's what you make for the entire year, okay? It would be like him saying you are forgiven $80,000 of debt. So multiple years, like that's a big amount. So say you owed 4 years, that would be $160,000 and he says, "Look, wipe off 80 of that." Now, if you're on a 30-year mortgage or a 20-year mortgage or whatever on a house, you understand what that means. Because like, you owe multiple years' worth of wages to that house or to that, maybe that car, Well, depending on what that car is and how much money you make. Um, but uh, that's what's going on. He's forgiving a major amount of money. And then in verse 8, this comes the quite, quite confusing part. He says, the master commended his, the, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So I think we have to ask the question, what is the manager being praised for? Now, he can't be being praised for his dishonesty. I mean, this is something that is not praiseworthy. I think, if I'm understanding the text correctly, that he's being praised for acting now with the future in mind. I'm not going to have an income How can I prepare now? Now, let me step aside and give us a couple comments on this real quick. I've heard this passage preached, and it's typically preached solely speaking about finances. Now, I do think that that's like the large or the main drive here. But I think that we need to step back a little bit further because I think there's application to this beyond just simply our finances. Although, I mean, clearly Jesus gets to the end of the passage and says you cannot serve both God and money. So in, in, in interpretation, we would understand that the main thrust here is with money. But I want to step back for a second, or step up from the text and go, how does this apply beyond just our finances? How can we be shrewd beyond just our finances? I think, I mean, Jesus clearly has an issue here with finances but I think there's a, a bigger picture for us to see so yes we should be shrewd with your money now and we should prepare financially for the future um, this is true but to think to take this text and just simply make it a, a an encouragement to have a good retirement plan um, is is missing the point of the text it is more than just make sure you have a good 401k with the right companies okay Uh, Or you should do a money money market account with some good Roth IRAs, right? Like, it misses the point of the text. So yes, there is a shrewdness in our finances that needs to take place. But I think Jesus has more than this in mind. I think he has more than just our retirement in mind. So Jesus, I think, is approaching here every aspect of our life. Money, relationships with people, relationships with God, etc., I ask the question, how many decisions have you made in the past month would you have made differently had you kept the future in view? Think about that for just a moment. How many decisions over the past month, the past six months, would you have made differently had you made that considering the future? How many decisions would you have made differently? See, to control your actions and tongues enough to act in line with the future is great wisdom. And that's what he's being praised for here. He's being encouraged because of his shrewdness to act with the future in mind. Now in the context, I think the Pharisees were more concerned about how they looked to others in the current and not how they would measure up to God in the future. So we're not saying that what the manager did in reducing the debt was acceptable, but that his motivation behind it was wise. Does that make sense? So I think we have to be careful that when we're understanding the text. Jesus is not saying, look, the fact that he like, essentially robbed from his manager, that's not necessarily good. So it's not like, okay, I know my boss is going to fire me tomorrow. So I know he's got a bunch of petty cash in his drawer. So I'm just going to go take it. Because my motivation's good, right? So I at least have enough money for cheeseburgers for the next two weeks, right? Like That's not good. If you work at a bank, you would understand maybe more of that. Uh, when I worked at a bank, I, you could walk out with hundreds of thousands of dollars like that. That would not be good, even though they're going to fire me tomorrow. Oh, oh well, they're going to fire me, so I'll just take this money with me. No, and Jesus is not going to say that that's good. He's going to say that the thinking ahead to the future is good. But the way I got there would clearly be sinful. The planning with the future in view is what was wise. Jesus is saying here that followers of Him should be marked by this wisdom, but often they are not. Do you see that, what He says? In verse 8, He says, "...the master commended this dishonest manager for his shrewdness." So again, I think the shrewdness is his, his seeing the future, his, his making decisions now based upon the future. And then he says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Man. Now remember, at this point, he's, te- he's talking to the disciples. So he's not talking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the disciples. He's saying, those of you who follow me oftentimes they're not marked by this kind of shrewdness. And I think we have to ask the question, today, for us in the church, are we marked by this kind of shrewdness? Like that, we live with the future in view. And again, this is more than having a good 401K. Do we live? Do we make decisions? Would people look at you and go, "They are that person is wise? Would the people at your work say, he is wise, he's making decisions that are looking beyond just the here and now? Or would they say, ah, they just make decisions on the fly, whatever feels best, whatever works good, whatever's most convenient today. No. Do we, are we marked by that? Jesus says that oftentimes we're not. Now, again, I want to remind us, just because you might have a lot of money or because you're secure financially and does not make you wise in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. I think we have to be careful with that. Because I have 10 grand that sits in a bank, that means that I've, I'm shrewd. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the encouragement. I'm shrewd. <laughs> you're shrewd maybe in your finances, but maybe not everywhere else. So it's not, confu- it's not superimposed. Just because I've got it down here means i got it down everywhere not do that so I I would ask the question then how do you how do the areas of dominion that God has given you look how are you acting with shrewdness in those areas that he's called you to exercise dominion over for example family in your family life how are you acting shrewdly how are you planning today in your family looking with the future in view Or maybe your relationship with your spouse, how are you leading them with the future in view? Ladies, how are you submitting and following with the future in view? Or maybe your house, how are you making decisions with the future in view? How about this, do you have lost people around you closer to the gospel today than three months ago because you've been acting with the future in view? Now I want to take us for a moment and understand that the future in view is more, again, more than just tomorrow. More than just three months, although that would be considered part of the future. But I think ultimately the picture being painted here is the future of the coming kingdom the future that the reality of judgment is coming. This is right in the context, right in the very next passage. Jesus is going to be talking about God's judgment. So how are we acting with the future in view? I think there's application here for perseverance. How are we persevering in our faith? Like we should be persevering in our faith because we have the future in view. For those who are following Christ, for those of you who love God, you're persevering because you know that He's coming back. You're living with the future in view, in mind. That brings encouragement, that also brings warning, right? There's encouragement because Jesus is coming back, but there's warning because because I don't want to be where the rich man's at. So then, if you think about that with our lost friend, when I said the question is, are they closer now than they were three months ago? Because you've been talking to them, you've been engaging them, you've been having conversation, you've been demonstrating for them things of the gospel because you have the future in view. Because you see that one day, they will either be sitting at the throne of God, worshiping Him in all of His splendor, or they will be in anguish and torment for the rest of their lives for all of eternity, because you have the future in view. So now comes in the passage, maybe a bit more confusing, verse in verse 90 says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Wow, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus like bipolar at this point? I mean, is he just kind of flip the switch? Um, We don't have time to dive into all this, but I think that the wealth talked about here is not necessarily sinful. I think he's referring to our current power, our current wealth and such. I don't think that he is saying that this is sinful wealth. Um, I think he's talking about being faithful with what you have now. Um, Being wise in the moment now. And then he says you will have friends in heaven because you lived here and now like Jesus has called you to live. I think that's what he is saying at this point. So basically, live faithful now that you may receive you into this eternal dwellings. Then, going to verse 10. And again, that might be confusing. We can talk about that later, but let's move on. Verse 10. It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in and much. So I think, again, I think this verse right here, 10, clues us into helping us understand verse 9. Now being faithful in the moment, being faithful with the unrighteous wealth. And so I think Jesus is saying that the wealth of this world is unrighteous compared to the wealth of the eternal dwellings with God. So be faithful in this. And you then, we know, I know, you'll be faithful in that in the future. So, two things. Let me make a comment about this very little is also be faithful with very little and faithful with much. A couple comments. One is some of us don't realize that we even have very little. Like, I know that for some of us might have been a slap in the face, but some of us don't even realize that we're sitting here with very little, and that's because we're not faithful with what we have. So, God gives us very little. Number two, some of us wonder why we have so little, so we realize it, but we wonder why. Maybe, maybe this is little knowledge of God, this is little uh, in provision or whatever, but we wonder why we have so little. The reason is because maybe you're unfaithful with what you have. Now, I'm not equating, I don't think we can equate at this point, That faithfulness equals God's abundant material blessing. I mean, that's not the alternative to this. It's not, I live well and faithful, so God gives me things. That's not the point. I mean, God can give you what He deems righteous. The point is, is our calling is to be faithful with what we have, with what we've been giving, with the very little things. So how you handle even the smallest of things indicates where your heart is. So let's think about these We know that punctuality shows respect. We know that initiative shows concern. Or responsibility in small things shows trustworthiness. Or kindness shows an awareness of your own need for grace. Or honesty, even in small things, shows reliability. So we think about those things. are, Are we, like, do we look at our lives... Ladies and gentlemen, like, do we, do we think the words that just came out of my mouth, that shows whether I am faithful. Like, can I handle a different situation, a harder situation? Or I didn't even handle that well. Or we think about, like, showing up on time. I mean, these are very small things. Do we handle those faithfully? Like, do we have concern for that? Like, do we get done talking to our spouses over a hard situation and we go, "Yes, God, thank you for your grace to be faithful in that moment," or do we just walk away going, "Oh, okay, cool, that was a good conversation. That was a bad one." What do we do? Are we concerned for? And, And I mean, think about your life. You know, there's many different applications for that. Jesus continues in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? Jesus is attacking those who want the wealth of this age more than God himself. Jesus is attacking those who want this age, this wealth, and this is exactly where he's going, starting in verse 19. So, I mean, the Pharisees fit this category clearly. They wanted the wealth of this world more than they wanted God himself. So we're going to talk about money here in just a few moments, but how many of us fit this category where we want the things of God more than God Himself? And I think we have to be very, very careful because this stuff can sneak in because it can be religious things that we want more than God Himself. I mean, this is idol worship. And wisdom only given by God enables us to see that we must use riches with the future in mind, with the coming kingdom in mind. Let's read verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, so let's talk about money here, because uh, clearly the text warrants it. Jesus warns us of greed right here. Warns us of idol worship of money. You know, it's interesting, many... I've seen TV preachers and other preachers preach on sex. Like that's like the popular thing right now. I don't know if you guys have paid much attention to that, but like we're going to do a seven-week series on sex. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but this draws a big crowd. But what's funny is that none of them preach on greed. I think greed. You know, instead what we typically hear is it's always give give more and you will be blessed more. But it's interesting. Jesus warns people more of greed than he does of sex. Greed is a big deal. I like how Timothy, what Timothy Keller says. He says, "Yet when t- speaking about greed, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident." that it is not a problem for them. And I think that's a good warning for us today. Having lots of money does not necessarily equal greed. Having very little money does not necessarily equal that you do not have greed. It's it's elusive to us. It's hidden deeply into our hearts. I mean, so much so that Jesus would give this much attention to it. That He would explicitly say, you cannot serve it and God. So understand, if greed is rooted deeply into your heart, so much so that you don't even know it's there, you could be worshiping it and not God. Do you understand the danger of that? I hope we're warned. That could be us. Is it rooted in there? So let me, let me kind of think through this with us a little bit. I, I'm, I'm stealing this from, at least the articulation of this from, from Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, idolaters do three things with their idols. So just kind of just help us see if we root out greed in our hearts. Do three things with their idols. We love them, trust them, and obey them. Love, trust, and obey them. Lovers of money find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking at others with jealousy. Okay, that that might be some of us, so we buy new toys. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Because my budget is in order, I feel safe and secure and I have hope for the future. Servants of money sell their souls to their money. You say, well, how is that? So since we look to our money for love and trust, we have to have it, and therefore we are driven to serve and obey it. So think about that. I mean, so if money is your source of hope, your source of fulfillment, that I am, this means I'm in control, and the future is going to be okay because of my bank account then you have become a slave to your money. And Jesus says you cannot serve both. You will serve one or the other. So if your hope is in that dollar, then you are not serving God. This is what Jesus said. He draws a very strict line there. Instead, does that mean that just because I have money that is helpful for the future, that I am necessarily greedy? No. But where is your hope? If that money was to disappear today, where would your hope be? Would you be okay or would you be in utter despair? The bank account's gone. We might lose the house. Where is your hope right now at that thought? If it's like anxiousness and worry and terror, there's a good chance that your hope has been placed in that paycheck or in that dollar, instead of in Jesus. Look, just because you don't have a house and you have to live in a cardboard box, Jesus is still in control, and your hope of spending an eternity with Jesus is still just as secure as it was when you owned that $120,000 house. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Money, though, let me warn us. Um... If we we're worshiping, If we we're worshiping an idol, it's the same as committing adultery. I just want to understand the magnitude here. Money, though, understand again. Back to some Keller thoughts here. Is a surface idol. See, so some people want money so that they can have power and influence. Some people have are greedy because they want control and security. Some people want greedy or are greedy because they want comfort. Or some people use money and want money because they want approval. So I think those are those are getting to more surf like root idols inside of our hearts. We want power, control, comfort, approval. All of these things that we should find in the gospel. We don't need power because God has all the power. We don't need control and security in our money because we have control and security in Jesus. He has control. I don't need comfort on this side of the earth because I have comfort in Jesus. I don't need approval because I'm approved by God because my identity is found in Jesus. Right? So, Let's consider, though, for a moment, real quick, uh, now that we're on the topic of money, about the richness of Christ. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 8 9, or Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, think about these words Paul says. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had all the wealth there is to have. But if he would not have given it up, he would have died in our, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. Do you understand that? Paul is telling us that Jesus gave up all the treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. So what about you? What about me? Do you serve money only looking at the here and now, or do you use money as a means to prepare for the future? And I just want to encourage us to step up so that we understand the further application of the text. It's more than just our 401K. We're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about using everything for the purpose of the future, making every decision, using every resource we have with the future in mind. Using it to see the kingdom of God come upon this earth. Do we see that as, like, do we make decisions that way? Do, that we want to see the temple drop from the sky who is Jesus Christ. Is that what we want to see? In a few weeks, we're going to start talking about, and we're going to take a break from Luke, and, and we're going to talk about basically what what we're going to call our our rhythms, our rhythms of everyday life, rhythms like eating, rhythms like communicating, rhythms like work, things that we're involved in every day. And we're going to talk about our identity, so we're as worshipers, missionaries, servants, family. How do we live that out in everyday rhythms of life? How do we take everything that we do every day and use it with the future in mind. How are we shrewd in the moment preparing for the future? Jesus is telling us here. He says cuz he talks about the difference between the children of this world and the children of light and he says basically that we have way too little concern about the future. We should be ordering our whole lives around bringing God glory. Everything. Everything we do should be lined up under these smaller purposes that God has designed to bring Him glory, like, for example, caring for the poor. Like, and, and here's the thing I want to encourage us, guys, as a church. Some, we don't do a lot of these things corporately because I want you to do them individually. I was talking to someone the other day and uh, basically asked, what does it look like for you to be involved in the body, like to be involved in the church? And the answer was this. This blows my mind. Well, when we have time... We are involved in every outreach opportunity that the church provides for us. And I'm going, man, that's just so backwards. Like, we should be involved in every opportunity that God provides for us every day. Not waiting on the church to provide opportunities for us. They're around you every day. But you have to, by the help of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, see those things. So, another opportunity would be gospel proclamation, sharing the word. Another opportunity, the local church, by living with, serving with, caring for, doing life together, those things. So, amassed wealth does not equal God's blessing or necessarily wisdom. So I just want to encourage us that, that he, is, he is saying, shrewd man, you are shrewd because. You are making this decision considering the future in mind. And if we step back, we go, yes, that that majorly involves money. And I think that's the main thrust of the text. But so much more application for us. How are we living life in every aspect, mind, emotion, spiritually, with the future in view? So Jesus is encouraging His followers, ask God for wisdom in everything you do and everything you decide. Do so with the future in view. Do this with the kingdom in mind. So now the second half of the passage is this. The path of folly which leads to destruction and eternal condemnation. The path of folly which leads to... The first one was about wisdom. The second one is the path of folly which leads to destruction and eternal condemnation start in verse 14. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And the law and the prophets were until John, since they were since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the one daughter of the law to become void. Jesus is telling us that the law and the prophets were sufficient for people to know the will and the way of God. So I think that's that's key. We don't have time to dive into that. We did that more in the Gospel and Kingdom series. If you want more on that, go back to that series. But the law and the prophets were sufficient. This is prior to Jesus. That information was sufficient. To know the will and the way of God. And now if the Messiah has come, it's even more so. So now, he says that people are pressing into the kingdom. And now, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees now. And I think what's going on is he's saying people now are pressing into the kingdom. They're getting into the kingdom except you. Like the ones who should be. The ones who, who have had the truth. And Jesus is saying that he is the one that's come, that's fulfilled the Old Testament. That He's not come to abolish it, He's come to fulfill it. And he gives an example next of the fact that the law has not ended, that He didn't abolish the law, but He's fulfilled the law. He says in verse 18 Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. All right, look. There's a whole lot in that verse. And my wife asked me last night, how long are you going to spend on that verse? I'm going to give it like a minute and a half, okay? I just just don't have time. Um, I want to, like I would love to, but, uh, so I'm not just like trying to go, ooh, he doesn't want to handle that verse, so he's going to like, you know know what I'm talking about? Like Some preachers do, they're like, that's a really hard verse, so I don't want to preach on it, so I'm going to skip over it. I'm not skipping over it, like before Yes, anyways, you got my justification. All right. Fear of man, I repent. All right. What What was happening was basically at this point, the Pharisees were allowing men to divorce their wives if they didn't keep the house clean enough or if they didn't cook the right meal. Like like stupid stuff. Like like not even like major things that we might be tempted to justify divorce with. But Jesus here resets marriage back to its original intent one man one woman and essentially what jesus is saying is repeated brief marriages are nothing more than outright adultery um divorce i want to remind us says to the world that jesus is not committed to his bride and he will have nothing to do with this jesus wants nothing to do with marriage that says that jesus is not committed to his bride all right so that's that's all i'm going to give to it uh we can talk about it and enjoy jesus's words later on that but uh now Jesus, at this point, recognizes the opposition from the Pharisees. So it's interesting because he begins to switch gears just a little bit. We get to verse 19, the rich man, Lazarus. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now think about this. This was a man who the Pharisees would have liked a lot, right? They would have been like, ah, I can relate to him, right? I mean, this is what's going on in their hearts. I, well, you know, God only knows what's going on in their hearts, but my guess is this is what's going on in their hearts. He says this verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. It's interesting, this is the only time when Jesus names someone like this. The poor man here is named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice that the rich man in the passage never shows the poor man compassion. He never takes care of the poor man, never shows him any compassion. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now think about this. This statement of Jesus at this point would have been astounding, right? I mean, crazy. Why? Because at this point, richness, blessing, material blessing was seen as that person having favor with God. So it'd be like, it's kind of like telling someone that Mother Teresa went to hell. She served the poor. She was compassionate to all people. Surely she went to heaven. Now, I don't know whether she did or not, and I don't want to get into that today, but it would be a shocking thought. Surely the rich man, if anyone was going to heaven, this one with blessing would be there. And Jesus says he's not. He's in hell. What possibly, I mean, the Pharisees at this point are saying, what possibly could the rich man have done? Surely he was headed for heaven. Now, apparently, from the context, he was condemned for his commitment to the easy life, to a lack of compassion and sacrifice for those around him who needed it. Now, I understand commitment to comfort in the easy life is quite different than purposeful rest. It seems to be that as we get later on in the text, I don't want to jump and to get too far ahead of myself, but Basically, later on, we see that it's comfort that he has chosen now in this life. And so then it's discomfort that he gets into life afterwards. And I want to warn us that just because we don't have millions of dollars doesn't mean that comfort cannot be an idol for us. That the easy life cannot be an idol life. Maybe you seek comfort. Now, this doesn't mean that you're never stressed. It actually means you're probably stressed often because comfort is so important. So this was the rich man. He had given himself to the pursuit of a life of comfort. This lack of compassion. I don't want to be discomforted from this. So even as the rich man is in hell, listen listen to him as he's in hell. Verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for... for I am in anguish in this flame. The The uncompassionate one now asks for compassion. He didn't want to show it then, but he wants it now. He wants the comfort now, even though he didn't want to give it then. Now Abraham responds, Child, remember that in your lifetime, I'm sorry, that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. The roles have been reversed. Jesus, by analogy, is saying, if you seek comfort here and now, then you shall have it and you shall not have it in the future. He tells the rich man, You've never rejected the lack of comfort and despair of those around you. Why are you objecting to the lack of comfort and despair right now? You, know, you weren't concerned about showing compassion then. Why are you concerned about compassion being shown now? What's changed? Oh, your circumstances have changed. You see what I'm saying? You see what he's saying? It was You weren't concerned about comfort then. Huh. But you're concerned about it now. I mean, think about this. Uh, if you have a comfort idol, this is foolishness. Have your comfort now and live in anguish in the future. Talk about nearsightedness. I'm going to live now for comfort now. I'm going to worship comfort now. What will the future hold? Nearsightedness. It's all I can see is I want this Now. I mean, even, think, even beyond thinking of judgment and hell, but think about marriage and relationships and finally, if I spend everything, all my resources to get comfort now, where's that gonna leave my 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 marriage, my parenting, my finances in the future? Let alone the ultimate eternity. Hmm. The children of light should be marked by pursuit of God, not pursuit of comfort. I was reminding someone the other day that our lack of comfort here and now is just a reminder that we can only find our ultimate comfort in Jesus. Only He ultimately can do that. Him, this comfort and knowing this comfort from God leads us to great compassion and sacrifice for others. James 2, if you want to go read that later, if you're really a child of the King, then you know compassion and you can't help but share it. I don't think oftentimes we show compassion or we seek comfort in God because we don't know what that, like we're still busy trying to do it over here. Verse 26, and besides all this, This is Abraham speaking. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to us. Jesus is saying that now is the time to choose. Once you reach either destination, there is no changing. See what he's saying? It's fixed. Once you're there, you can't get back to here so the idea of purgatory and, and praying like, to get them out of this place or go to go to this place or whatever, this is Jesus. Like, It's not possible. There's been a chasm fixed. It's done. You're there, you're there to stay. And you're here with me, and you're here to stay. So if you're not a follower of Christ, i ask you the question, do you believe that hell is real? I mean, if not, ultimately you're saying that Jesus is a liar here. We've all sinned and deserve hell. I want to remind us of these things. But because Jesus died on the cross, He's made a way for us. He's made a way for you. By repenting and placing our faith in Him, we give Him our sin. I mean, the great exchange, right? We give Him our sin and we get His righteousness. (laughs) I hope that that never becomes old news to you. If you're alive today, though, you still have an opportunity So, let's talk about riches for just a moment. One way you can make sure that you don't follow the folly of this rich man is to give away your riches, right? You're going, no, I want to keep a hold of them, right? I mean, that's where my heart is too. No! Give them away. If we watched your money, would it be clear that you value the kingdom? If we watched your checkbook for the past six months, would it be clear that you value the kingdom? So I would encourage us to pray for a heightened desire for God's purpose to guide our money and for us to think about the future. So let's continue on in this. Talk about the future and your brothers. He said this. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. So this, is, this is the rich man saying, I beg you to send Lazarus, to my father's house for I have five brothers so that they may that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent think about what he's saying here he's saying that the word is not good enough they must see the miracle of this dead man the word's not good enough So even in hell, he's still thinking the word is not good enough. The proclamation of the gospel is not good enough. He's still consumed with himself and that there must be a man-made way for them to see that repentance is necessary. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Keep this in mind next time someone says, well, I would believe in God if he would crack open the sky or if he would heal my mother. Here we see the internal importance of hearing and responding to God's word. I mean, the rich man finally shows concern for other people, right? Finally does. And I think Jesus at this point, the point in adding this part to the story Jesus' point here is to help those who were hearing him understand that they are the brothers and that they still have time to decide. Now this is not you still have time, like as in just take your time, but as in you're still alive and the chasm between that has not been fixed. We're reminded that the heart must be changed by God in order for one to believe. It's the word, it's the revelation of God. The rich man says that his brothers will believe they see a dead man, but Jesus knows this is not true. The truth is that they will not. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what do you think happens when you die? And the question is, are you prepared? Are you prepared? And there's good news. If you don't know for sure, Jesus died for you. So here we're exhorted to have this kind of shrewdness where we understand what the future what lies ahead, and that we live with diligence and intentionality. So we see the eternality of ourselves in this story, where we spend eternally in existence in one place or the other. There is no speak of annihilationism here, or the fact that our souls just kind of burn up, and, and, and instead of going to hell, they just kind of disappear. I mean, just very clearly teaching against that here. So questions, a couple more questions. Are you having conversations with others with the future in view? Are you being compassionate with the future in view? Not trying to earn your salvation, but this is fruits of your salvation. Are you making decisions with the future in view? Are you going to be, sorry, we're going to be talking heavily about how to do this in the future in the next few weeks. But I want to remind us, this passage will be very important as we begin to talk about how to live out our identity in everyday rhythms because we're essentially when we do that we're living with the future in view. We have to in order to effectively live out who we are as worshipers and servants and a family and missionaries and worship I think I said that already. Now, here's the deal. We will never be shrewd enough or compassionate enough to earn God's favor. And you say, well, man, you just preached a whole sermon on how to be shrewd and compassionate. But you will never do it good enough. But we can rejoice today that Jesus was shrewd enough. That He was compassionate enough. That He lived with the future in view. Do you think He could have went to the cross had He not had the future in view? You think, like, just imagine with me for a moment, maybe Jesus going to the cross, and what He has in mind is that one day that temple, He Himself will drop from the sky. That one day, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be centered around His throne, worshiping Him. Do you think He went to the cross with that in mind? There's a very good chance that he did. That he knew what was coming. So I'm going to go through this. I'm going to make the decision that it's not my will, but the Father's will. With the future in mind. It's his righteousness that answers our sins. So we will never be shrewd enough. That doesn't mean we don't try to be. That doesn't mean that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't try to live with the future in mind. That should just be the outworking of the salvation that was already acquired and paid for and worked out perfectly by Jesus Christ. He was shrewd, so we then in His likeness can be shrewd. He was compassionate, so we in His likeness can be compassionate. And we don't do those things that are in favor with God. We do those things because they're an outworking, a flowing out of our love for God and His work in our life, the display of His glory through us. So we don't leave with guilt, but we, with, we rejoice and leave with instruction from His Word. If we should follow Him, then we should live with the end in view. We should not live with the foolishness that satisfaction must come right now. That we must, it's, it's all based upon this nearsightedness in my life. I mean, understand, every advertisement that you've seen this past week has been done with your immediate pleasure and the nearsightedness of your life in mind. That's all done with that. Even even planning for your 401k is so that you'll feel good and comforted right now. We don't want to be greedy people. Like, this should be part of our cry from our heart. We should know that we oftentimes are, but we don't want to be. We don't want to be people with only today in mind. We want to be people who follow Christ. And we want to be people with the following words on our minds always. Let me read this to you. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away. I saw a new city, Jerusalem, a bride on her wedding day I heard a loud voice from the throne saying look at the dwelling place of God he will dwell with them they will be his people and he will be their God and wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and he who is seated on the throne remember we're living with this on our minds he who is seated on the throne said I am making all things new He said, it is finished. Hear these words. They are trustworthy and true. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty He will give water from a river with no end. Wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. All this mourning, all this crying, all this death we've seen, all these broken things will end. All our pain, all this death we've seen, all the former things will end. And I saw no temple in this new city. Its temple is Jesus Christ our Lord. And this bright city has no need for sun. Only the glory of our God. We live with that in view. Let's pray. As the band comes forward. Father, let us be people who live with the end in view. so that we do not despair today because there's a future ahead. Father, we do not lose hope because we know the future is ahead. And Father, we do not make decisions based upon instant gratification or nearsightedness today. But we live knowing that there's consequences for that, good and bad. Father, we live with the future We live with that in view, with that on our minds. And Father, this is not something that's just a good trick for us to have better or happier days, but this is something that marks a follower of Jesus. That we live with the future on our minds. The coming kingdom on our minds. This is what it means to be kingdom people. People who are part of the kingdom live with the kingdom on their minds. People who are not a part of the kingdom don't live with the kingdom on their minds. Why would they? But we who are part of the kingdom live with the kingdom on our minds in everything. Family, parenting, their spouses, finances, how we talk to our co-workers, how we manage our bosses' money, how we manage our own. Father, we understand that we will never accomplish or do this in such a way that earns your favor. But we know Jesus did it perfectly. So, Father, let us worship with Him on our mind. Let us worship knowing that there's a day coming where that kingdom will be a reality for all to see. There will be no hiding from it. And, Father, we love you and give you praise. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen y'all stand as we worship this morning